was the probably the deadliest three years in Australia's current military history. And did you have your life be put at risk at any point? So I actually died overseas um, for about two and a half minutes and got medically evacuated out of country. Since 2001, the Australian Defence Force has suffered more than 400 cases of veteran suicide and male veterans under 30 died by suicide at double the rate of other Australian men at the same age. Everything's 100% different, so you've got to be prepared as a young person to go almost go in blind. Veterans are more prone to experiencing depression, agoraphobia, social anxiety and post-traumatic stress than civilians. The reasons for this are broad ranging, but trauma and disconnection from society are major contributing factors. One man who's been through more than most and continues to battle post-traumatic stress to this day is Luke Adamson. Seeing that sort of devastation up close, I don't think it, it ever leaves you. He's a former combat engineer who served on tours of duty in East Timor, Sumatra and Afghanistan, where he witnessed horrors he says will never leave him and suffered the devastating loss of fellow soldiers. He even technically died from an anxiety-induced heart attack and was miraculously revived. It puts me into panic. Right. Like it's almost, I mean, that's probably why you get almost post-traumatic stress and all those kind of things and anxieties because there's the fear of it, the unknown and what, what was the trigger that was the last straw to make that happen? These days, Luke runs his own charity for transitioning ADF personnel and their families called Heroes on the Homefront, a service dedicated to connecting veterans to each other and the community. It's a mission that saved Luke's life and the lives of others. Massive, massive changes in everyone that we work with. It comes at a time when calls for a royal commission into veteran suicide are getting louder, as are the voices speaking up for this crucially important issue. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. So look, how did your defence career start? I uh, started in 2007, um, sort of enlisted into the army and not knowing what I was going to do, um, decided on being a combat engineer. Um, I actually enlisted just around the corner at Nylor House here, yeah, and just same same stuff as everyone goes through. You go through your, your swearing-in ceremony and then off to Kapuka, which is eye-opening in itself. And then after that, I was at um, School of Military Engineering at, in Moorbank in Sydney. Um, and that's where I did my initial training to be a combat engineer. Um, and then off to my battalion, which was the first, first brigade up in um, Darwin. You were 18 when you started? Uh, I was 18 when I started. I, yeah. yeah. So why, why did you get into it? What made you make that call? I initially wanted to join the police force once um, finishing my year 12. Um, and my brother is in the army. He joined the army straight out of school. Um, so he thought that was his career path and he's now an avionics technician. Um, and he said to me, just go and sit the um, army, like the tests and the, do the Joe's Day, what's a used day now or something like that. Um, so go sit sit that and see how you go and then you'll be able to be ready for the police force testing and everything. Like it would help you to get into Yeah, yeah. Like I was doing it um, as a, almost like a practice run so I didn't go into the police not knowing and being blind. Um, so I did that and I actually found it really interesting the options that they gave me at the end of the day and um, what I was actually capable and smart enough to do. Um, and I really liked the look of them and I went home and I processed and I spoke to my brother about it and said, well, what's, what's this career like? What's this career like? Do you know anything about this, this, and this? And then obviously the, in we had the internet then and mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, so I did a bit of research behind those ones, um, and decided on joining as a combat engineer because I mean, it showed gunfights, showed explosives, showed vehicles, it showed, it showed everything. It was a complete package, um, sort of job role. And I was like, wow, I might as well. Give, and that was that exciting to you then. You liked the yeah, look of that. I, yeah, I was a bit of a rat bag growing up, so a bit of excitement. I was like blowing things up. And yeah, yeah. A few letterboxes back in the day, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, so I liked the look of it. I liked the sound of it. Um, like the pay is unbelievable for an eighteen-year-old to have everything paid for and travel the world. And yeah, it's a big carrot for young guys. Yeah, um, and I was in. A, I was in a bit of a rut at home as well. So I was like, oh, still living at home with mom, between mom and dads and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, well, I'm not sure what to do. Yeah. And, not, and I didn't want to go and work at Woolies. I didn't want to, I didn't really want to grow up. Yeah. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I spent most of my days like at the pub working part-time, like just, just doing silly things. Yeah. Um, sort of in limbo kind yeah, of. And yeah. And like the army just seemed like a sort of an odd, obvious choice to, 
give a crack. Mm. Um, do you think that's the case for a lot of young guys who are in a similar position that see it as a good option? I think a lot of guys, younger guys that I speak to, they they really they either want to go or they're not sure. Um, a lot of them are like, come the guys that I see now that come through cadets, they're like, I'm joining the army as soon as I'm able to do my testing. I'm, I'm going for the army and I'm going to do this because they've had that exposure to what it could be like um, and an understanding of the roles that they could join. Mm. But I mean, a lot of people that say they want to join the army their whole life, I knew a couple of the guys on the bus before we even got to Kapuka, as soon as they got to initial training, they just, they couldn't be there. Mm. They didn't like the structure. They didn't like it. So, um, so what guys have this image, guys and girls have this image in their head of, of what it's going to be and then it's not that and they go, oh. Yeah, still to this day, I think people join the army not realising that it's it's not everything that it's, it's I guess, without the pun, cracked up to be. Um, but it is, it's what you make it, what what career you choose, what corps you choose, what um, branch of the army or defence force you choose. Like, army's different to Navy, Navy's different to Air Force, it's just... Everything's one hundred percent different, so you've got to be prepared as a young person to go almost go in blind. You can do as much research as you want, but until you're in there, you, you don't understand it. I that can think. be a bit of a shock to the system, though. Yeah, yeah, Kapuka for a lot of people was a big shock to the system. Mm. Um, what did you get faced with when you went when you went there? Uh, so screaming off the bus, um, lined up a whole bunch of kit at your feet, and they show you how to sort of put that together, and then march you to your rooms and. You drop everything off in your room um, with usually four other people in your room and it's just basic desk, beds, white sheets and a comforter and that's about it until you sort of settle in. Um, then it's marched straight up to the barber and shave your head. So, And then what was the routine like up really early in the morning? Yeah, so usually 6am 6, 6 every morning um, they would call your hallway number um, and then that's like come stand by your beds with your bottom sheet over your shoulder um, and then it's yeah just get dressed, get shaved, march down to breakfast, come back, change into your dress of the day, whatever it be, your PT or your your general uniform, and then off to either lessons, um, whether it be lessons on drill or weapons or just classroom, work health and safety, heat and all that kind of stuff, um, your mandatory sort of training stuff. And then, yeah, go about lunch, same after lunch, different lessons. And it's about 12 weeks straight of lessons and learning. Um, very, very crammed learning so lo- very long hours mm. um I think, like 12 hour days sort of oh thing. yeah yeah you weren't allowed to go to sleep until i think 9 30 10 at night but you'd sit in your room after dinner from i don't know seven until 9 30 but you'd, you'd have jobs to do which would be like ironing your uniforms or polishing your brass because you, it all leads up to that end march out yeah. so you've got to do all that preparation and unfortunately they don't give you i think they do now they give you gold plated brass so you don't have to do it but back when i joined it was sandpaper then wet and dry rub then polish then sandpaper like all the way through every day and it had to be like yeah mirror finished by the end of your course so you couldn't wear it okay and so how'd you go with that discipline well my family actually thought i was going to suck at it and um they actually thought that i wasn't my nan's words where you're not going to make it we'll see you soon oh thanks nan yeah Yeah. thanks nan (laughs) um but i think once i got in and i found that sort of niche um made a few friends and i just thrived on it I, i loved it i loved the lifestyle that i chose to follow in that in that part of my life yeah so is it it's pretty divisive like some people get into it and they really enjoy the structure and feel like it suits their personality and then others get there and realize that they can't really follow orders like that yeah yeah so there's a lot of people that really really struggled in that in that regards of like just being told that they need to change clothes or shave properly like and they'd bite back at the the ds or the person yelling at them a corporal yelling at them and then Obviously, the corporal or sergeant or it would absolutely tear shreds yeah, off them. Taking it personally. Yeah, and then yeah. They, and then they would take it personally, and then they'd be like, oh, this isn't for me. So, and then I think it was four weeks you had, or a week or four weeks, I can't remember properly, but you had a you just had a certain time period when you got to Kapuka that you could pull out and you wouldn't have any sort of problems with getting away. But after you got through that initial period, that almost like a job trial period, you were, you were stuck, you're, you're you were in. there, you committed, yeah, for your four years unless something happened right right so when it got up to that limit were there guys sort of thinking about whether they were going to pull out yeah yeah, yeah. there's a, i think there's always that apprehension of like oh one more day what do i do like mm. is this for me um it's like any job i guess like you go in and you do your trial period and you're like oh can i see myself sitting behind a desk for the rest of my life entering numbers or doing other people's taxes and stuff like that so 
I don't think it's any different to general employment, but I guess the just more the, extremes. Yeah, and the risk that's involved, your hands potentially could be in someone. Uh, your life could be in someone else's hands potentially in the future in your job role. Is, is that something you're willing to respect? But you were really confident that it was for you. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think I chose the perfect role for myself. I was always hands, hands on, like building stuff and fixing my bike and all those sort of engineering basic sort of things. Um, and then going in as a combat engineer, um, just rehashed my love for just getting down and dirty and just doing things that needed to be done when they needed to be done. So. And so combat engineer, what is that role? Can you explain it? Uh, easiest way to explain it is the, um, in Afghanistan, I guess, is the guys that walk out the front with the metal detectors looking for the improvised explosive devices. Um, that's what our role predominantly has been in the last 11 years. Um, but we're sort of described as the jack of all trades. Um, we, do, we build the bridges, we blow up the bridges, we put in um, defensive things for tanks and other units, concertina wires. Um, in East Timor, we built houses and schools and a medical facility and stuff like that. So we, we're pretty much like the construction and improvised soldiers of everything um, without actually being masters of anything. Yeah, gotcha. And so how did you see yourself as a, as a young man at that time? Did it really build your confidence being in, uh, in training? Yeah, I think 100% it built confidence. Um, I mean, I wasn't shy or anything growing up. I wasn't in the popular group. I wasn't in the the other end of the groups. But, um, yeah, it just sort of cemented who I wanted to be and who I wanted to grow up to be. Like meeting my brother on base and seeing what he was doing and what he got like work on multi-million dollar aircraft and um, just have money to do what he wants and all that kind of stuff. It was just like, well, if the government's going to pay me to do it, and I get to shoot and play with really cool stuff. I, I, I want to do it. So, um, but it's definitely made me a better person, more respectful for, I guess, my elders because I was a rat bag growing up. I really didn't care if I upset someone. Um, so, on that regards, as as a person, it's made me a lot better as well. And so, how long were you at Kapuka for, and where'd you go from then? Uh, so, twelve weeks at Kapuka for initial training, and then off to um, Darwin. Uh, off to Sydney, sorry. Um, and that was my, I did my IETs, which was my um, infantry minor tactics sort of course, they call it. And that's where I learned all the basics about being a combat engineer. So core specific job roles, um, which is for us, it was like how to build Constantina wire fences and how to use demolitions properly and safely and um, shooting, um, how to build bridges. Um, we did um, boat bridges and operations as well, so a bit of water stuff um, and all those field field sort of mechanical stuff that we, we have to be able to do as a combat engineer. So that's like just looking after small en engines and equipment like chainsaws and stuff. You would have seen recently the engineers um, at the Cudley Creek bushfires um, cutting down all the trees. That's That was my role. So, um, yeah, learning how to fell a tree basically and stuff like that. And you loved all that sort of stuff. Yeah, just being outdoors, I think, and um, getting to do all that stuff day to day is just, yeah, really exciting. It's diversity as well. It's not sitting behind a desk or anything like that. And was that months? Uh, I spent about eight months there, I think, um, in the end, because I had to wait a little bit for my course to come up because um, there was a little bit of backlog but with instructors and um, the course before not being able to fulfill part of their training due to weather and stuff like that. Um, but then I was there, yeah, probably about eight months and then posted up to one CR in Darwin. And what was the camaraderie like between the other guys that you were training with? And yeah, well, we spent most night, um, apparently engineers are known for their drinking. Right. Um, so we spent most of our nights at our boozer um, just drinking rum and we had our study pams in front of us and just asking each other questions. But yeah, it was mostly just drinking great for handling explosives <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of hangovers yeah um no nah, all the guys are great like once once you get and you meet those guys because those guys that you're on that course with you you may have known for a little while now whether you'd seen them around at kapuka or you marched out at the same time or you've had those couple of weeks in limbo um just in what they call a holding platoon waiting for your course so you've sort of built a little bit of a relationship for them with a common interest of being a combat engineer um, so you get to know them really well and 
have a few beers with them and drink with them, find out about their partners, families. And, and it's a pretty intense, pivotal sort of experience that you, neither of you are going to forget. So yeah, people that you meet. And you rely on them as well. Like if you go into like your Dems practice, which you usually study for in pairs, but then you do it individually with your, your supervisor or your corporal or your sergeant, whoever's the range safety on the day, um, you've got to back what your mates are saying on how they're teaching you or how they're helping you to know that that's the right thing. So it becomes that mutual trust as well that, oh, yeah, if I, if I crimp this explosive this way, like thing he said, oh, that, that's right. He's not going to bump steer me in, in that because it yes. could kill me. So you really got to work on that trust. That trust issue, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, then what about getting deployed? When uh, did that happen? So for me, I, I posted to Darwin in, I think it was October 2007 to my unit. And then I deployed for the first time in 2008. Mm. And it was a pretty touchy time as well in the Middle East. Then. Yeah. So I, my first one was to um, Malaysia and that was just on a um, what they call a rifle company, Butterworth, which is a, a joint training exercise between Australian um, and the Indonesian sort of armed forces. And we did it with the Brunei armed forces as well. Um, it's more of a just a... I don't know what you call it, like a social partnership sort of exchange thing. Um, we took a whole um, battle group over there with infantry soldiers, us and some transporties and stuff and just played around in the jungle and learnt some new new things that they use and um, just combined training sort of effort. Um, but then I deployed um, from that one. I came back to Australia and then deployed in 2008 um, to 2009 to East Timor for nine months. Um, and then off to Sumatra Assist when they had the tsunami earthquake at the end of 2009 and then to Afghanistan in 2010 to 2011. So uh, East Timor to Sumatra, how did you cope with those deployments? What were they like? Uh, East Timor and Sumatra, they were, they were very much eye-opening, um, very much the same. Um, Sumatra was more, we were there for disaster relief, um, trying to help the locals get back to some sort of normality, um, cleaning roads, searching for bodies in their rural towns that had been absolutely decimated by a mudslide or something like that, um, fixing bridges and um, just all over recovery efforts like you see in any sort of disaster relief. Um, but we were just, we were there f pretty well first. That was the first time that you'd seen disaster relief. That was the first time I'd been overseas, yeah, for those things and um, seeing how the other part of the world lives, I guess. I'd yeah. only ever travelled to surface paradise and <laughs> uh, the Gold Coast they as live, a kid. They live pretty well there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, What so, sort of things opened your eyes then? What did you? Oh, I think the, the one thing that will always stick with me is when we, we got to our barracks in East Timor, um, we sort of got off, off, off our barracks and – moved into the rooms that the guys had moved out of. Um, and the first thing you do is you walk in and you're like, oh, this is absolutely filthy. Like they've left it in a mess or it's not functional for what we're going to use it for or because um, it depends on who was in there and what, how many people and all that. So we ended up just gutting all the rooms and then throwing it in the back of a, a Mac dump and going, well, we'll take this down to the local dump and the locals can use what they want and stuff like that. Um, and we didn't realise, but we actually had to wear our body armour and our helmets and have our weapons with us to go to the dump um, because the locals in East Timor, they just actually were climbing on the vehicle trying to get to the food scraps and the materials and everything before anyone else would. And that was the first time I'd ever seen or lived anything like that. Mm. Um, I've seen it on the news, but I just don't think you understand the, the magnitude of how, I guess, poor and desperate, people desperate are. these people are. I mean, you look at the toilet paper crisis at the moment and toilet paper, these people are looking for a, a chicken bone with a bit of chicken on it to feed their infant. Mm. It's, yeah, it's unbelievable. That so made you see the world a bit differently. Yeah, definitely very eye-opening opening as well. And um, then in Sumatra, um, we were on a task for one day. We were doing um, recovery for a village that had a wedding on on the day of the thing and a, a mudslide came down through the valley and wiped out the whole wedding of like, the whole town that was attending this wedding and um yeah and it was just a pile of a pile of mud so we had about four bits of equipment like just mini excavators and stuff um 
and soldiers just everywhere in fluoro jackets just as spotters. So they'd just move a little bit of dirt. Um, we'd oh, have a Finding look people. Yeah, trying to find people. And were you one of them? Um, were you spotting? Or? Yeah, I was a spotter, yeah. Um, and there was a couple of little, like a little boy that was carried past us just in a, covered in mud in a, in a sheet. And yeah, it, it's devastating to know that so many people died in that. And um, me, I was 20, 21 then, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really, really eye-opening. And you hadn't to, seen death like that before? No, never. I, I don't think I'd even, I'd probably seen a couple of car accidents, but mm. sort of paid no attention because I wouldn't have been driving. Uh, it would have been parents just driving past and stuff like that. But yeah, seeing, seeing that sort of devastation up close, I don't think it, it ever leaves you. And yeah, nothing can prepare you to see that? No, stuff. no, not at all. Yeah. And so what sort of help did you have at that time, you know, after a, a day like that? Was, did you support each other or was there anything there in terms of talking about it afterwards or? Yeah, so we did. We, we were pretty well prepared. We had a, um, a really good section for that, um, that deployment for me. And then you get a lot of, um, you have your padres come around to each, to each camp, wherever they're stationed and have a chat. Um, but we did morning briefs and then we did afternoon debriefs and then obviously we'd all talk to each other at night because we'd obviously be staying in a room probably not big, not bigger than this for 10 of us and we were only there to sleep and work. So um, sort of looked after each other and tried to make, like I guess typical Aussies do, they try and make fun out of yeah. bad, bad situations yeah. when, when it's appropriate and no one else is watching. But, um, yeah, you, you never forget sort of stuff like that. And so how did you feel you coped with it at the time? Did you uh, like sort of push it down or it didn't phase you too much or you thought about it later or? I think I think about it more later, later now in life. Um, at the time, I just saw it as almost like my job. I, mm. it's, I was there to do the job. I knew what I was going to do. Um, so I was prepared for that. But it's, it sort of doesn't really sink in in the moment. I don't think um, you get it here with people. They attend a car accident and they're the ones performing CPR. And it's not until they stop and walk away mm. that it actually hits them that they've just either lost someone or save someone's life. Because you've got that detachment and the adrenaline pumping. Yeah, yeah. So like getting hung up on seeing that one day, knowing that you're going to have to go out there the next day and do the same job, um, it was sort of the, the furthest thing from your mind. You just have a laugh with your mates and sort of get on with it as best you could. Mm. And so how long are you in Sumatra for? Uh, I was in there for about six weeks, I think, yep. all up. And how did you do with East Team or being away for that long? From, from family and everything, nine months. Yeah, it was good. We get we got 14 days off um, as like a, pre, a deployment break, um, usually about halfway through. So most of us flew back to Australia because it's only, it's only 54 minutes from Darwin to um, East Timor by plane. Yeah. Um, so most of us came home and just hung around in Darwin or then flew to a capital city where our families were. Um, but in East Timor, we had phones that we could just go and sit on after a day's at work and call home and the internet and Facebook was around then. And Did you find you, you missed home or you didn't really worry about it that much? I didn't actually worry about it that much, especially when I was um, in Team or like, because I, I had all my friends and that I worked with were my friends outside of work as well when I was in Darwin. So I was deployed with most of my really good mates that I hung out with at home. Yeah, we missed our families and stuff like that. A couple of the guys had young kids and we'd all talk about that but um yeah for 50 minute flight home if something drastic happens it's not it's not the end of the world people say you're on deployment and you can't get home but something like that yeah and you miss them you obviously do depends depends what your family status is at that time i guess and then what about afghanistan when did he go to the middle east uh so 2010 i deployed to afghanistan in october and did you have the feeling that that was going to be different to the ones that you'd done? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, just before we deployed, um, we had the two engineers killed, um, Smith and Morland, um, by an IED, and obviously, um, you knew them. No, I didn't. I didn't know them personally. Um, Smith, he actually came from our unit and went to, um, I think it's Townsville Three CR, um, where he deployed with them, um. But I didn't know any of them, either of them personally. Mm. Um, but obviously, just being in the same corps, um, doing the same job that we were getting ready to go over and do, it's it's quite daunting. It rattles you, to yeah, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. 
And so what was the mission for you going over there? What was your brief going to Afghanistan? Um, so mine, mine got a little bit, um, not confusing is probably not the right word, but mine got changed up because I actually broke my wrist and my sh- and dislocated my shoulder about six months prior to deployment. I'd do that. It's just riding a motorbike. Oh, <laughs> they would have been happy with that. Yeah. So I was actually going to miss out on the trip um, because of my injuries, but I did everything in my rehabilitation to get to get fit, and I got I got fit, but I didn't have a position on the trip. And then my corporal decided he wasn't up to it to go. Um, he didn't want the responsibility, just wasn't comfortable with leading, leading and um, doing doing the job. Um, so that obviously bumped one of the guys up um, into the the full corporal position. Um, and then I ended up getting promoted into the Lance Corporal position. Um, so it was a little bit of a relief for me to be able to go. Um, but at the same time, I stepped up from just being a, a sapper, like a private soldier, to in a leadership role on my first deployment so to that Afghanistan. Means managing other people? Yeah, managing the other guys and making sure they're doing their job properly. But so, you really wanted to go? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone, everyone wants to go. Yeah. And so what was it like immediately when you got over there? It was hot. Yeah. It was incredibly hot, incredibly hot, incredibly dusty. Mm. Um, everything was incredibly structured, um, especially when we're in um, Al-Minhad in Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Um, yeah, everything was like about ticking boxes and making sure everyone had 100% of their gear and um, wheels were done, photos were done, all, all that kind of stuff had to be done prior to flying into country. Mm. Um, so you felt like your training really came into it then with how yeah. on point everyone was with everything. Yeah, and everyone I think just sort of thought that, like people, we have that saying that yeah, you're not on the you're not on deployment until you, you touch down in country. So you, people can promise you, oh, you're going on the trip next year, but you're not going on the trip next year until, you, until you're there mm. sort of thing is the mentality. Um, so being on that plane landing um, in Tarrant on a, dusty airfield and then with all your body armor and helmets and carrying your backs and all that kind of stuff uh, into a war zone um i don't I, you can't replicate that feeling no, no. so and what was the atmosphere like it's quite surreal everyone sort of just walks around and does their job and day-to-day tasks you see a lot of a lot of moving parts a lot of logistical support um, there's always constantly like helicopters coming in and out and people going on tasks and um, it's quite crazy but then once you sort of get into the routine of finding your spot in that that massive cog um, well being a little cog in a big wheel I guess um, you sort of everything starts to click and you sort of forget everything that's going on around you and just focusing on your day-to-day activities and what you've got to do and that involves like just going Daily, you've got to go to a, brief, a briefing in the morning and then at night, and you've got to give a briefing to your boys and you've got to do all their, their weapons checks. So make sure they've got the right weapon, make sure they've got full magazines, water, the car's stocked up, it's got full fuel, it's got first aid kits. Like the list. They always list, had something to do. Always, especially as um, in my position as like the 2IC of the section, it was my job to make sure every one of them, our guys was squared away administration, family, logistics, everything. Um, so if anything went wrong before we stepped off, it was my fault. Right. So, yeah. It's a lot of responsibility. Absolutely. And how dangerous was it at that time? Uh, that, well, we were on what we call MTF2, and that was the most deadly deadly trip for Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. So what happened on that trip? Uh, we had well, Sapper Jamie Larkham killed. We had Corporal Richard Atkinson killed. Um, there was a couple of other people. Uh, Robbo was killed, another engineer. Um, Corporal Jones, the chef, was shot and killed. Um, was that over that like six month period? Or? Yeah, that was over, yeah, a 12 month trip. And then about a week after we left, we had that green on blue where they shot four of our soldiers in the back as well. So, yeah, between MTF1 and MTF2 and 3, it was the probably the deadliest three years in Australia's current military history. And did you know any of those guys who died? Yeah, so I served with um, Jamie and Acker. Um, they were both combat engineers in my unit. Um, Acker was my roommate. 
Um, and I actually roomed in Kapuka with his cousin, Matthew Atkinson. Um, so I roomed with his cousin and then when we are on base, actually, he was my roommate. Yeah. So I used to sit out the back and drink blondies with him. Yeah, yeah. so you were really close. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we were in different uh, troops in the end, so we sort of didn't chat during work times. But after work, we just, yeah, both sat out the back and had beers. And so, yeah, he was, he was a fantastic bloke. And so when, when those casualties happen, what impact do they have on the on the troops? Devastating. Um, when when Jamie was killed, we were out on a patrol um, up to the Mirabad Valley, um, up just up to a patrol base, and we'd heard the computers were going down because it was it was just, everything was going black. Um, so they cut everything off when there's an incident. Um, so everyone sort of said, "Well, if we can't watch the TV or we can't talk to our partners in the rec room. We we're just going to go to bed and." or clean our weapons or whatever we're doing. Um, and we were just staying um, in swags out in the standing area because we were visiting. Um, and I ran into one of our sergeants and he's like, oh, what are you guys still doing here? I thought you guys went back today. I said, I oh, know we're on an overnighter. He's like, oh, um, can you go and get all you guys up? It was about 11.30 minus 10 degrees. Um, so I had to go and wake all my guys up out of their swags and that in itself, you get a whole lot of heat. You know, why the fuck am I getting back yeah. up and what do you want? Um, and obviously at that stage, I didn't want to be the one to tell them, like, you've got to get up because this has happened. It was get them all together, get them up around the fire and um, sit them down together and I'll come over and brief them. And then when that happened, about three of my guys that were really, really close friends with Jamie just lost it, just broke down and couldn't say anything and cried. Everyone just sat there miserable about two in the morning and then we sort of just yeah said nothing and it was just like a numb feeling and then next morning we're back in the car and back out on the road how do you regroup from something like that while you're still on there on uh, on deployment obviously you have a job to do still so yeah i think the job the job to do is the, probably the biggest thing um everybody knows why you're there and um not that you're going to be a liability but um nobody wants to be letting the rest of the team down yes it's devastating yes it's sad and it's something we live with every day um but yeah it's the the job to do you've got to protect the guys you're with go on with it and then um every soldier gets a, a big memorial service over on in town or wherever they're they're killed bagram or kandahar so we do, once once that's all organized and everyone goes to that and grieves together at that that ramp ceremony that sort of reiterates to us that we're we're here, we're doing a job. Um, let's not let their life be in for nothing and you know, being nothing go in vain. So let's do our job, do it do it better than we were doing it and yeah, really really make it worthwhile to remember Jamie or Richard or any other guys. And when those casualties happened, how did that sort of change the mood of did it did it have that sort of an impact or was it, you know, business is business sort of thing? No, like it's it's always business is business, but um, it becomes a more somber, somber mood. Like you're out, you're out in the vehicle, and you, you sort of just Jamie's in your mind or Richard's in your mind, and um, but then you're angry as well. So you, anyone you see, you just you, you want to shoot them, yeah. Because like anyone that you pull over, you just, or if you see a guy walking around with an AK and doing anything like that, you just you automatically just want to be like, it was you, yeah. Um, but you can't. It's just one of those one of those things. Because you're um, just so hurt by it and yeah. want someone to pay for it, sort of. Yeah, and everyone over there is a, a potential target. Like, mm. they could turn around and shoot you and it's just that whole, yeah, it's one of the, oh, I can, you can't really explain the feeling of, like, going out the next day and then, like, with a loaded weapon looking for someone that could potentially kill you that may have killed your mate yesterday. So, yeah, it's sort of a hard pill to swallow, but. I guess that's why Australian soldiers are so well respected for their professionalism. And did you have your life, do you feel, be put at risk at any point? So I actually died overseas. Um, I was involved in an incident um, where I was unconscious, pulseless, um, for about two and a half minutes and got medically evacuated out of country. Um, so I woke up in an emergency triage room um, in Tarrant um with tubes, coming out of my neck and out of my throat and stuff like that. Um, and then I was actually flown to Bagram Airfield Base um, where they do 
So where all the, I guess, the elite special forces and green brays and all that are based, and they have the best surgeons and triage people in the world um, up at that base because that's obviously the highest threat area. Um, so I was seen by some um, like four-star general cardiac thoracic surgeon um, who was just volunteering his time in Afghanistan because he obviously earns enough money in his profession in America um, to sort of do all my tests, all my stress tests and everything like that to try and pinpoint what happened, what was the trigger, um, how it happened and all that kind of stuff. And in the end, we just he couldn't put it down to anything except sort of like a stress-related cardiac arrest. And um, yeah, I went back to work and back to my boys in about six days and, yeah, got on with the job. And so just tell us about that that day when it did happen though like obviously you don't know exactly why but what led up to it or what were you doing at the time well we we went out on a routine patrol like just uh down the road walk around have a look um intel on this intel on that um shake a few hands and then yeah we sort of just came back through base and yeah, it just happened don't don't know why so heart attack yeah pretty much um and like I said, they said it might, may have been caused by stress, anxiety, um, just being hypervigilant and everything like that, that that caused it. But yeah, it's still to this day, it's a, a fear of mine that it happened because if I, if that happens to me out in a shopping center or around a mall or something, I was, lu- I was lucky to survive because I had trained the best trained people for CPR and all that kind of stuff right next to me when it happened. Whereas out here you might find someone just walks around you or thinks you've just had too much to drink or, um, yeah. So and what do you remember of it? I, I remember just drinking a bottle of water and then just, that's about it. And then I remember waking up with, um, yeah, breathing tubes coming out and stuff in the triage room. Yeah. So and that's, that's, that's about it. And then from that day on, I was, I was, my anxiety just went through the roof and. Yeah. Cause I, I can, well, I can't obviously relate but being able to try and get that thought out of your head while you're back doing the job you were doing must have been impossible yeah well usually we'd i'd sit in the back of the car or in the in the front seat looking at the road looking for any ground sign for the ieds i I couldn't even sit in the car anymore um because it was like stuffy and hot and so I, i ended up standing out the back hatch with a headset on just with the gunner for the rest of the trip just to have that breeze and that coolness and everything like that. Um, but it's, it's almost like triggered by at- atmospherics now. So like if I get hot and clammy skin or something like that, that emulates the exact sort of stuff that happened on that day, the dry wind and anything like that, it puts me into panic. Right. Like it's almost, I mean, that's probably why you get almost post-traumatic stress and all those kind of things and anxieties because there's the fear of it, the unknown and what, what was the trigger that was the last straw to make that happen. Yeah, and because you didn't know, it made it sort of even. Yeah, well, there was scarier. no no answers. Yeah, it's no there's no clear definition as to why. Yeah, and so you couldn't get past that. Obviously, for the rest of your trip, you sort of had that. No, in so, yeah, mind. Yeah, so yeah, the rest of my trip, I did that, and then it. How much longer did you have to go after that? Happened? Um, that was on the second of uh, February, and then we came home on the sixth of July. So I was, okay, shit, so a long yeah, time long still. Yeah, long time still, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, stopped eating in the mess because it was enclosed and, right. yeah, it was. Yeah, and but, so your team would have noticed a change in you since that point. And, yeah, well, I, I think they noticed a change and um, everything like that, but when it goes back to I had a job to do, I just yeah. had to do it the best but I could. Some and, pretty serious mental fortitude to get through that though. Yeah, yeah, it really hurt. Yeah, definitely really hurt. So And so then coming home? much the same um they give you the, the four week for your partners they say if, I, if he's not showing any signs of getting better or reintegrating into normal society within four weeks maybe get him to go and see someone mm. did you have any more panic attacks while you were over there before you came back or yeah a couple a couple of little moments and stuff like yeah. full panic attacks where i was like i'd just go out and stand on the back step of the car while we're driving along and just spew just because of anxiety and um all that kind of stuff but I mean, it really, really hit home for me and uh, my partner when we got home and I, could, I couldn't even go into a shopping centre. Like I could get to the door and feel the cool air and the air conditioner, 
as soon as I went inside, I just wanted to leave. Because it was stuffy in there. Stuffy and hot and there was people everywhere and just like just a few of those atmospherics that were similar, just I just couldn't do it. And so that would send you into a panic when you were in those situations. Yeah. Almost like pretty much I could tell you walking through like Elizabeth's shopping centre where every single bin was, where every single toilet was, where the exits were, just so I knew where I could throw up, Mm. where I could get cool water or where I could just get out. So... And so what did you do? Did you just stop going out? Yeah. For a while there, I just became very reclusive and sat at home, closed windows, air conditioner on, just sort of, I went to, I went to work when I needed to and stuff like that as well. Um, Cause we actually posted down to Adelaide when I got back um, and sort of pushed through for a little bit best, best we could. And then eventually I just sort of stuck my hand up and said, oh, I've got to go and see someone. It's just not getting any better. I'm not getting any better starting to drink a lot more and yeah so the drinking was a way of self-medicating yeah so at that stage i was i was seeing a psychologist on base um it was pretty helpful and doctors and stuff like that and then um i was actually referred to see a psychiatrist as well um for the medical side of it so the the prescription medication side of it to yeah. like help me sleep and just to bring my anxiety down or to help me cope with my anxiety and it wasn't until i started seeing him that i actually sort of realised the magnitude of the trauma that I did sustain, um, not just in that one incident, but being super hyperventilant. Just on hop, edge for so, so long. Yeah. Um, yeah. And back to back, like my, my trips are very close together um, where a lot of people spend 10 years in the army and they might go on one. I mm. did I did four four trips overseas, three operational in four and a half years. Mm, so that's massive. And he didn't decompress. Yeah, properly with any of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, got back home and um, started seeking help and stuff like that, um, which was good, good for a while. But then it sort of spiraled out of control a little bit more when I found out that I was I was losing my career. When they're telling you, oh, you're now not fit to serve in the Australian Army because of your medication and you can't handle weapons and you've got mental health issues. Um, so then that's a whole other thing to so deal with like, as well. well. What am I going to do? Exactly. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like. Yeah. Um, at that stage, like, uh, my wife was pregnant with our son. Um, we just bought a house, got, yeah. got a puppy. So it was, everything was crashing down. Yeah. And got all these bills and now they're telling me I can't, I can't do what I love doing. Um, so it's just like, oh, well, what am I as a person? Yeah. Cause when you're not in that system, that's been your life. It's like, who am I outside of that? Yeah. And that's what so many of you colleagues experience yeah absolutely and that's what a lot of them i guess the guys struggle with right now outside of the army and even in the army transitioning out is what am i when i get out of the army what what do i do and a lot of the guys like myself didn't didn't want to leave the army don't want to leave the army because it's what they do it's what they know it's what they love yeah Um, but because of their injuries illness or medication for mental health then unfortunately we can't can't be employed and so how did you respond? Were you diagnosed with PTSD at that point? Uh, very shortly after that point, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was um, diagnosed first with anxiety, um, with ag- agoraphobia, panic attacks. Yep. Um, and then obviously I had my other injuries of my shoulder, my hearing loss, um, and a few other niggling knees and stuff like that. Yep. Um, so that's what I was discharged with. And then obviously... Um, under treatment, you can't get diagnosed with PTSD um, and severe mental health within 12 months of seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So you have to see him a few times right. prior to getting um, actually diagnosed because they need to build up that, I don't know, that rapport. And It's right. um, a long time, it seems like. It is, yeah. So um, that, that, that's what I've heard the standard, but I have heard cases of people going into their psychiatrist and saying, this is what happened. They're like, well, you've got PTSD. Um, but I just don't think they can write it down and submit it for com super or um, superannuation or a payout for a period of time um, because it has to become permanent and stable. Um, so they have to put in the other like counselling and other things into practice before that actually becomes accepted, I guess. And how did they explain PTSD to you? So, oh, PTSD, that's just a complex beast. Yeah. Um, because I mean, anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse, adjustment disorder—they um, all fall under the umbrella of PTSD, um, and it can come in such a 
are vast. You can have one of them or you can have all of them. Um, I got asked on a course once, well, there was seven of us sitting around. We got asked, um, there's this whiteboard and it was just a question, what is PTSD to you? And we all got up and wrote, wrote something on the board. Um, one of the boys, the first guy that got up, stood up, grabbed a text and the first thing he wrote on the board was suicide. And it's just like, well, that's what PTSD means to him. Like that's the first thing that came into his mind is PTSD means suicide. And then there was, yeah, substance abuse, alcohol dependency, um, resentment, anger, fear, like socialization. It's, there's so many things that fit into PTSD that I don't actually think is a full list because um, emergency services, PTSD would be, it'd be different as well. And standing next to someone, explaining to them that they've just lost everything in their house, they break down and cry. I mean, that in itself could be PTSD because of the emotional turmoil that volunteers now had to see someone live with. Um, so it's a very, very complex question, I guess. Yeah. So how did you, how did you approach it? Did you have a clear way forward at all, or uh, is there a program for that? Where do you start with trying to rehabilitate? You meant to look towards places like RSLs and open arms counselling services and and do the right things, but. When you get to that stage, and I was one of them, when I found out that I was losing everything, um, I didn't want to engage. I didn't want to go out and seek help. I was I was too busy in my own mind going, what am I going to do? How am I going to now provide? How am I going to pay my bills? What am, what's my next career? And then you sit in a dark room watching TV, watching a movie, drinking, and then the next day you do the same thing, but you just stay in your pajamas. And then, you're stuck. Yeah, you're stuck and you just self-isolate one of those big PTSD symptoms. Um, and I did it for ages. I just self-medicated at home with my prescription drugs and then I drank and then my partner would come home and be like, what have you done all day? And I'd be like, nothing. Then that would lead to an argument um, and then I'd go and get help and I'd go and see my psychologist and my psychiatrist and put on that brave face that everything's fine and when it wasn't. And then, yeah, what, what do you do? You just, it's a, it's a sort of a cycle. Yeah. And do you, could you clearly feel yourself getting worse? I, I was 100% getting worse daily. Um, and it wasn't until I sort of, um, my partner had had enough and she's like, you got to go and get help. So I actually admitted into the mental health ward at the repat um, when it was there um, for, I think it was there for five weeks, um, which was good. To start with, because I got... So that was detox and... Yeah, sort of detox and um, having that constant care from nurses. And I didn't have to worry about myself. Like I could just pretty much survive um, rather than trying to worry about everything else that was going at home. I was almost removed from everything that was going on. Yeah, um, like all the pressure. Yeah, all the pressure of like, oh, how am I going to pay the bills? And like every time you go to the fridge and your bills are on the fridge, it's like, oh, shit. And when there's too much... It's so overwhelming that you end up doing nothing. Yes. Yeah. You don't know where to start. Exactly. Of. Yeah. And then having your partner at home too going, like being angry at you, it just compounds even more because, like, you're upsetting them as well. And, and you don't, you don't know what to do. You're ashamed. Yeah. Yeah. Shame. You don't, you don't know how to fix it. Um, so yeah, I ended up seeking help and spending some time there. And um, the first time I was in there, it was, I thought it was really beneficial um, and re- really, really good. Um, and then obviously I went back went back home and um, sort of tried to press on the best I could and um, everything like that. But it, in the end, I, d- I needed more. I, I wasn't ready to get out, but I couldn't be in any longer because I was holding a bed for someone else. And, um, and then I ended up just one night, we, my wife and I just had a massive, massive fight, massive falling out. And I just went, well, I'm going back to the wards and it's probably best that we separate because we can't live together, we can't be together, we can't be happy and you're not happy, I'm not happy and all of that. So it was just like, and that was just a massive shock. I just pretty much packed a day bag and got in my car and called the hospital and I was on my way there and they're like, oh, we're full, we can't have you. So I went and stayed, crashed at a mate's house for a couple of days and then waited for a bed and got in. Um, and yeah, tried to get the help again and sit in the system. And, um, but then even then the second time around I was in, I knew everybody that was still in there or back in there or something like that. 
And I actually developed a, a drug habit in there because they were so readily available and I had my own prescriptions that I could get filled throughout the day as mm. well as take their prescriptions. Um, so I ended up, yeah, taking, lining up in the morning for my drugs, lining up for the afternoon in my drugs and and sitting out in the back with other people taking their drugs. Um, so I actually developed quite a, quite a bad habit in hospital um, just because of the availability of the drugs. Um, yeah. Because you were trying to be as detached as as possible. possible, yeah, just searching, searching for the numbness. Yeah. So, and was that noticed? And I, I'm probably, I was pretty good at putting on a very good face. Right. Um, at that stage, I was running the charity as well. Um, so I was using the charity as a lot of excuses to get away from the hospital, saying, I've got to go and do this, I've got to go and do that. Where in actual fact, I was going to the pub and having a beer. Um, I was still doing a lot of the charity stuff, but I was, in, I was in no, state to be able to be doing anything properly um i was i was achieving it um it sort of kept me busy and kept me sort of focused on something other than sitting in my own self-pity yeah um but yeah so i was doing that and then when when was this what year was this uh this was 2017 um and then i moved in moved out got out of the ward um because i had to once again leave um, and get out, and they were moving to the Jamie Larkham Centre, the new, the new centre. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not going there because, one, it's named after a guy that I served with and um, I don't want to be transitioned and all that, so I'll just I'll go. And I ended up going to stay with my, back with my parents for a little bit, my mum, and then I moved from my mum's to my dad's um, for a bit more freedom and flexibility um, with my own life, and then that sort of got... Not hard, but it was still still in a bit of a rut. And my dad drinks a lot, so I was just like, "Well, I'm not going to be here." Yeah, um, and sort of made that decision to drop all my medication and just get clean, um, which I did with a mate. Um, started going out and doing women's footy running and trainings and um, doing lofty every now and then, and trying to really just do the things that are important to me. How tough was that journey? Pretty tough. By yourself when you're trying to find motivation to do it and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, especially like when like the guy, the man, I, the guy I was living with, like really, really good mate of mine since high school. Like he had a job, so he couldn't hang out with me for the day and do the little things and say, "Oh, well, I'm just going to go and do this today." You come and um and have that support. It was sort of like got to get out of bed myself. Mm. Got to not drink. Got to. And you have the temptation to not be sober because you don't want to be faced with your your problems. Yeah. So, and I think that's when like the the charity and um, everything sort of became my real focus. Um, got on board with the Walk for Veteran, um, and that was sort of a, a really big sort of thing that was happening. And I was just like, well, I I can't screw that up like that. I've got to be like everything that they ask of me as a committee member to do, I've got to do it. So, so it was that responsibility to others? Yeah, yeah, and that responsibility to others and to to try and help people not go through what I had to go through when I got out of the Defence Force, not fall into the holes and um, not have the, the right paperwork in for defence assistance and DVA assistance and have a, a good transition, not a, not a bad transition. So what is the charity? Uh, so my charity is called Heroes on the Home Front, um, and we actually operate with a another charity called Hearts for Heroes. Um, so we sit on the same ACNC status with them, and that's actually run by um, Corporal Scott Smith's sister, Roxanne. Um, Scott was killed. He was a combat engineer as well. He was killed in Afghanistan in 2012 um, from an IED. Um, so she started Hearts for Heroes sort of in his memory and to help other soldiers as well, based out of Elizabeth and... I actually came across her when we lived out north um, and they had a cafe opposite the Holdens and I just went in there one day and sat in the corner um, with my assistant's dog, who's not here today obviously, but sat in the corner and she came over and had a chat and then we realised that I was a combat engineer and then she opened up about her brother being Scott. And, yeah. um, then I spent about six months every day just with her talking about what they were doing, what they were achieving and started a Facebook group. Yeah. And then, yeah, it just sort of snowballed into a registered charity today. And so you're all about helping guys out with that transition? 
Yeah, so we, we do a lot of things. We, we're focusing a lot on um, the families as well. So I know when I transitioned, my partner got nothing. She didn't get any information because, one, I didn't pass it on to her, but two, it wasn't readily available. Um, so we sort of starting at the, the grassroots sort of care for veterans, and that's um, community events, family events, kids involved in their families because a lot of veterans um, dissociate from, from their kids because the kids jump around, they want their attention, and the veteran will sit there and be like, oh, just leave me alone, just leave me alone, just leave me alone. So we started trying to get um, veterans and their families to, to fun activities with other veterans and as well as the community um, to build those relationships. So one, the partners meet each other. Two, the kids all get to play together and the veterans can sit around and sort of talk and integrate with each other as much as they want. Um, so we, we're doing really well on that stage. And what difference does that make to the lives of these families? Massive, massive amounts. Um, we've we've grown so much in the last, or even the last this year, we've gone from like 500 people following us to like thousands. Mm. Um, every year we do AFL tickets, we do Adelaide 36 tickets, we do family days, bowling days. We just had a, um, a kids day at Latitude last weekend or the weekend before. Um, we're doing a golf day. We've got the walk for veterans this year as well. Um, we've got Anzac Eve at um, West Adelaide Footy Club. They're doing their big memorial service again this year, so we're going to be part of that again. Um, but we're, we, we're focusing on not giving out the welfare of like a here's a, here's a food voucher, here's a fuel voucher. Um, it's We've given you that, now go away. We, we're focusing on the the broader issues of the community so they can talk and um, through my rehab and a lot of the other guys that I work with rehab, we've got quite extensive knowledge of the DVA system, how to transition, all the job agencies, which rehab providers are, are good, which ones are bad. So you give those tools to help these people go and seek the, yeah, the assistance just, they need. Yeah. So, I mean, we've had I've had veterans that go, oh, I need help. Um, a guy that I work very closely with at the moment, he's, he rang me ages ago and I hadn't spoken to him. I spoke to him online and we always had little bits of chats and here and there and stuff, but he rang me one day and he says, I don't know what to do. He goes, I can't, I can't get in anywhere. I can't see anyone. I can't do anything. Like it's six months wait for me to get help. And I said, oh, all right, let me make some phone calls and I'll get back to you. He was in hospital four days later in a bed that apparently wasn't available. Um, and that's just through what, what I've tried to do is just visiting places like the Jamie Larkham Centre, meeting with the people at the top and saying, we need more people to help at the lower levels. And if we're saying this needs to be done, we're not, we're not kicking and screaming that you should be doing it. We're, we're telling you it needs to be done. And what sort of feedback are you getting from people and what kind of changes are you seeing in, in some of the clients you're working with? Oh, massive, massive changes in everyone that we work with. I mean, we have organisations reaching out to us now to help them, big organisations, um, saying, how can we get on board with what you're doing to help you, but to help us get our credibility back in the contemporary veteran area? Um, because a lot of them are just so disconnected with what is currently needed. Um, for veterans. I mean, it started with shell shock back from like World War II and Vietnam. They didn't know what to do with these veterans, so they sort of just shut them away. Then um, they ended up building their own clubs. You got the Vietnam Veterans Association, Vietnam Veterans Foundation, and the RSL all look after the same generation. So, and so many of those veterans, they are still young. That are, that they are, need, yeah. that are needing help. You know, they're 30, under 30, or, you know, between 30 and 40, they're still young people. Yeah, well, the average, I think, service length now for veterans is like about five years. So, and four is the minimum, and most of them between four and eight years, and they're out because they don't want to have it as a career anymore or they're too high tempo and broken that um, they just can't go on physically. So it's um, it's pretty disappointing that you have, excuse me, you have organisations that say, well, why don't you just go and get a job? But if you can't get out of bed in the morning without hurting, how are you expected just to go out and get any sort of labouring job to, to wreck your body even more when you can't even get out of bed or pick your kids up? So, I mean, that's one of those things. Hopefully the Royal Commission will get up and all these other orga all organisations, myself included, will be, will be looked into um, thoroughly to see what we're actually providing 
um, and then have a massive overhaul of the, the veterans' suicide rate mm. and care. Because the PM's um, appointed a national commissioner recently. Yes. Uh, but there's still no confirmation of a, um, of a royal commission. No. And some people saying, oh, what would that achieve? Or what are your thoughts on that? I think like the, the rolling commission is, is, is a great concept. Um, however, it has no end date and it's all held in-house behind closed parliamentary doors and it's at advisal sort of level. So they advise, the committee will advise the Prime Minister of what they think needs to be done and then it's up to them to release that information to the, to the general public and put that into place, whereas a Royal Commission is an independent that will come in tell them exactly what is wrong and give them points to fix, um, which is probably going to be the better way to go. Yes, it's going to cost more money. Yes, it's going to, it'll take a shorter amount of time. Um, But I think the biggest thing that the Royal Commission is scaring a lot of people is that there's going to be a lot of heads on the chopping block. It's going to leave a lot of vacancies. A lot of people are going to be held accountable for a lot of wrongdoing. For your own view, um, what do veterans need when they're transitioning out? They need a plan. Um, we actually pitched an idea the other day of um, a transition booklet um, to um, Tony Piccolo, the member, um, Shadow Minister for Veterans Affairs, that was just a simple, it had everything in there that's needed, every support service, every phone number, every contact, um, what exactly each organisation does. Um, and unfortunately, every every organisation, they, they cross over, but they never actually run the things. I mean, last year you've got um, On Me Careers started in South Australia as a, a career transition place for veterans to get employment. Um, the same year, within the same month, you had the Premier's Veterans Employment Program. You had the um, Partnership Hub Veterans Employment Program through StoryWrite started and now you've got the RSL have started a veterans employment program. Psychosocial events is the way to go. I mean, we we developed with a lovely couple, Julian Rob Walker out at Dublin, a equine therapy program. Um, so much like assistance animals and stuff like that, they they volunteered their farm, their house, their horses. So to be good at engaging with a horse, you actually have to ground your own emotions to then be able to control a horse and what a horse does. Um, so it's absolutely brilliant program that, that we, we started, but I mean, we just, we just hit roadblock after roadblock with, with funding. But that said with the ball rolling and, you know, you've trialed it and it's gone well and you've got studies happening, how optimistic are you that there is progress being made and you are going to have breakthroughs in this area? Yeah, we definitely will. We, we won't stop until we do the, the, the positives that we are achieving or I, I personally think we're achieving and others personally think we're achieving, um, well outweighs the, the the thought of even giving up just yet. Yeah. And what does it mean to you? What's it done for you in your own recovery? Sort of owe everything to the charity to just keep me insane, keep me passionate about helping and not doing my best to help others not go through what I had to go through with the um, sort of catch them before everyone's sort of focused on crisis care. So there's no, there's no lead up to... So waiting for it to happen rather than being... Yeah. The, the main issue is you've got to put those preventative veteran cares measures in rather than waiting for the, the suicide count to go up and then go, oh, now we're going to look at fixing it and do what we can. It, it's too late then. We need to we need to look forward to, to stop it actually getting to that stage. And how do you manage your own PTSD now? Where are you at with that? I, I have good days. I have bad days. Um, I have days where I just I don't want to get out of bed um, I usually try and book something on as much as possible whether it just be for myself or with my son or um, just even a coffee with a friend or something like that just something to get me out and doing something but yeah every, everyone has good days everyone has bad days some days I have bad sleeps and it's, it's, it's just normality life for me now it's something that I've sort of come to terms with but it's not easy it's not easy living with it and it's just one of those things that you you never you'll never be cured of PTSD. It's just the way that you adapt to having it is is the key, I think. But where you're at now compared to where you were in, in twenty seventeen, you've obviously made some pretty big strides. Yeah, yeah. And that was um 
of no fault of the systems, but unfortunately I did a lot of that hard work myself. Um, and I think that was just for pure resilience and passion to not have other people suffer, knowing that I've, I've lived that experience. I've come out and gone, gone through it and now come out the other side. Yes, I still have days. I'm, I'm not going to argue with them and say it gets better. It doesn't. Every day it doesn't get better. But it's the way you, you use that, that passion of helping other people or finding something that you're really into in another aspect of your life. Um, it, it can really make a difference. It could be just one, one, one trigger to someone that you say something to them. And if you save one person's life just by speaking to them on the phone or giving them the time of day or saying, hey, this is an option for you, um, would you like to try it? And, they, and then they go off and thrive with it. It's the best feeling you can have. It doesn't get easier, but you get stronger. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Go to the gym. You, it doesn't get easier, does it? When you go to the gym, you, you just put the weights up and it gets heavier, but you enjoy it and you build up resilience and you build up strength. And it's exactly what you're doing with your mind when you're struggling every day with PTSD. But the silver lining of going through what you've gone through and coming out the other side of it is now that you, you have the credibility to be able to help others and, and hopefully mean that they don't get into that, that same spot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a sort of a double-edged sword for me though, because I've become sort of a media spokesperson for the <laughs> for the younger generation of, of veterans and and what and what we need which annoys quite a lot of people in big organizations mm. but I'm, I'm just playing but someone my needs part. to speak about it as well that's the thing it's, it's yeah. something that people so typically don't want to talk about and that does have stigma surrounding it so yeah when you find someone with a story like yours who's willing to talk about it and has gone through it it's important that you're you're heard so yeah yeah and like, i i get that a lot but like even though my story is not as good as some of the guys that are out there that I know that have just absolutely phenomenal stories, they're just not at the point where they can tell them. And if they did, they, they would, and they will. I know a lot of them that will. Yeah. Well, you have put in those yards and you're helping thousands of people now because of it. So Hopefully. thank you, man. Thank no, you for your service. Well. Okay. No worries. Thank you very much. If you got something out of this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show so we can keep bringing you the content that matters. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and get involved, get onto the Youngblood Podcast Community Facebook group and follow Youngblood Podcast on Instagram. And if you're keen to get in touch with me, email youngbloodpodcast, all one word, at hotmail.com. This podcast was produced by the talented Rory Noak at Podbooth. You can check them out at podbooth.com.au. This is Youngblood. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.